so I think that that's the difficulty is the onus of responsibility seems to imply that women should leave and and by fix the problem by getting out of the situation um, rather than the perpetrator of the violence taking responsibility and actually changing their behavior and learning how to um, make different choices. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Rosie Batty is Australia's best-known family violence campaigner. Her work began in 2014, after her 11-year-old son, Luke Batty, was murdered by his father, Greg Anderson. Less than a year after Luke's murder, Rosie was named the 2015 Australian of the Year. Rosie's autobiography, A Mother's Story, tells about her childhood in the UK and the violence that Greg Anderson subjected her to, as well as what she's gone on to do following that horrendous incident. Rosie, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Nice to be here. You uh, grew up in, in, in Britain. How would you characterise your, uh, your, your childhood? Look, I think on many levels, um, it would have been idyllic. Um, it was a, I, I grew up on a farm um, where there were cows, beef cattle, sheep, um, you know, the small village that where we could roam free and, you know, our parents didn't see us from dawn till dusk almost and the adventures we could have and the, um, the freedom we, we, we just took for granted were you know, just, you know, memories that I have really close to me and, and all of the community that, um, you know, I grew up with and, and all the people I knew um, in the village. And I guess the, the thing that detracted from my childhood being idyllic was that I lost my mother when I was six and it was a sudden death of, of and, and very, um, you know, a shock to everybody. And, and that really changed the life of myself and my two younger brothers. Um, but we had, you know, really lovely extended family. I had a grandmother and she ended up living till she was 100. So we were really, you know, it was wonderful to have extended family, people that we could reach out to that we knew who could care for us. I mean, and it must have been a really difficult journey for my father to have three such three, three such small children as he was a farmer and, and you know, having to work. You write in your book about uh, how people tried to keep the death of your mum from you. Uh, what do you think caused them to do that? And, and how did that affect you as a little girl, uh, just, uh, just six years old at the time? Yeah, look, I think it's always affected me in ways that I, I, you know, I continue to unravel. I'm certainly incredibly sensitive when I find out something that I, I feel like I should have known. And I think I'm overly sensitive to that. But, you know, back then, I mean, I'm nearly 60. So we're talking of some generations earlier where children were really brought up seen to be seen, not heard. Um, and you know, people did things to protect children. So I have no doubt that what they thought they were doing was protecting us and shielding us. But, you know, what I, I feel that we know now is that children need to be able to be supported and included in that grieving process and so that they understand and can feel and not be frightened of the, of the pain because it, it's all something that we can't avoid. We're always going to find grief and loss impact us at some point. Your uh, grandmother, uh, Nana Atkin, sounds like the perfect English grandmother. Uh, tell us about her. Her name was Gertrude, and I have to say that she herself thought that was a ridiculous name. Um, she had... <laughs> A glint in her eye and she was a funny you know she had a great sense of humor and and a, a really inquisitive spirit and 
for me, she's the role model of, of what I hope I can be as I age gracefully. You know, she, her family was the centre of her world. That was all that she was important to her. She lived independently at home for the entirety of her life. You know, she required more um, support to be able to do that, but was fiercely independent. And I still have an image of her as she would cook Sunday dinners. And she continued to do that for family, you know, for quite a long, you know, really quite a long time. But I can still remember her, not, you know, having difficulty uh, mashing potatoes. So she put the saucepan on the floor and she'd put her body weight behind the potato masher and still mash those potatoes. Um, so for me, she made the most of her life. As she, as she got older and she could do less in her physical frame, became more fragile, she adapted and still had hobbies and interests, still was interested in life. And as I said, she was a role model to me of what's possible. And she had, her, her complaint would be that she had too many people visiting her and she got overtired at times. And I thought how, <laughs> lucky, how lucky she was really to live in a village where all her family were in a short, very a lot of them were in walking distance actually. And, and everybody would pop in almost daily uh, so that she, she was always baking. She always had cakes and a cup of tea and, she was, you know, after my mother died, I would think that she she became the most important person in my life. When you were in your 20s, you uh, followed a uh, well-worn path for uh, many uh, young English people and became a, a working holiday maker in, uh, in Australia, uh, which, was, uh, which was when you uh, met uh, Greg Anderson. Uh, you, you, write, you write in the book about Greg's need from the very beginning to to have a sense of, of power and control in the relationship. Uh, and it reminded me of a conversation I had on the podcast with Jess Hill, where she talks about the notion of coercive control uh, and of perpetrators almost following a playbook. Uh, what, what were the, looking back, what were the patterns in the relationship that, uh, that, that he pursued? Look, I'd never had abuse in my family. I'd never had witnessed or experienced violence in any form. I didn't know what it looked like. And I certainly didn't realise initially for quite some time that the confusing and disrespectful and abusive behaviour was indeed violence. And it took me having counselling to understand that I didn't cause it. It wasn't something I did wrong. And it, it, it was a journey to understand also that there are different forms of violence. And that because you know, I, I think I associated at the time that violence was physical and it didn't occur to me that the other forms of violence um, and the things that were making me unhappy were actually violent. And um, when I understood that, it really did um, make me more determined to, to to put boundaries and to end the relationship and, and, and make it very clear there was no going back. But certainly coercive control was not a term that was recognised or understood. And I think that um, that's certainly come into a more familiar term over the last year or two. But it's something that, of course, um, people working in the family violence space have understood has always been part of this. And absolutely, that was my journey. And certainly, it's really difficult for people to understand because they really understand how to get to you, how to undermine you, how to confuse you, how to make you doubt yourself and your truth and your perspective of life. It's a really interesting journey as you look back to think, how could I, a strong, independent woman, get in, in you know, find myself being dragged into this type of um dynamic and it went on for years and years and years and he would know 
he would, you know, switch and change what he could do and how that might unsettle me. And as you get desensitized to that, there would be another form um, that would disable you or that would um, blindside you. And often that would be uh, maybe access visits with Luke where he wouldn't turn up or he didn't bring him home or he would change some part of that arrangement and make it seem like that was my fault. And it's very, very difficult for anyone else involved to really understand that though some of these seemingly small things are actually aimed very concisely at you and you your reaction is is it, it becomes you know more and more um yeah you, you just you just become less of the person gradually and gradually and that's what it's all about and it, you know it's very difficult for police and people like this because invariably it's not bad enough for them to be able to do anything about it. And unfortunately, in my situation, that coercive control ended up in um, the murder of Luke, which is the ultimate act of power and control. Um, as I began to put those boundaries in place and he no longer could manipulate and dominate me in the ways he had over years. Yes, the, the way you describe coercive control feels a bit to me like uh, the discussion of microaggressions in racism. Uh, I remember uh, Barack Obama's uh, written about uh, the petty slights that black men are subject to, uh, you know, being handed the, car, the, the keys to a car outside a hotel where someone assumes you're the valet or being called boy or having someone uh, just grab at, their, grab at their wallet as you, uh, as you walk close to them. Uh, and that sort of those little, um, little actions add up cumulatively to... Uh, to uh, minorities not feeling their place in society in the same way as it sounds as though you're talking about the the many small actions of coercive control just working to steadily undermine the, the self-esteem of, uh, of, of victims there and it and it's all calculated you know it, it's all calculated mm. and it's not a it's not by accident and it's quite an um you know what what would be something I would find difficult with somebody else um, would look at and, and perhaps not really understand why that emotional reaction or, or why that impact would have made such, why it would have had such an impact on me. Um, and this is the difficult thing, I think, for police and judicial system to really be able to understand um, unless you are in that um and, you know, if you have a deep understanding. So it, it is a very, and it's incredibly dangerous. It's the, the most dangerous um, aspect of, of family and domestic violence. And ultimately, it, it doesn't always mean that there is physical violence. It, it can be a number of different forms that they would use um, in order to have control over you. You also uh, talk about uh, Greg having been generous at times, uh, coming around to uh, help clear brush from outside your house or to, to help uh, uh, build, build uh, things around the house. Uh, with that, th so those acts of generosity interposed with, uh, with acts of, uh, of, of violence and, and abuse, um, that really is qu quite a, a common part of a, a family violence cycle, isn't it? Well, it is because I don't think, in my my view of the world, um, no one is entirely bad, and in complex relationships, there are moments of fun and happiness, and jokes and lightheartedness. It's not that you wake up every day and violence is ever present. Now, for some it may be, but for others, it, it can have gaps, and something can just you know, turn something into a very dangerous situation or uh, because of outside external pressures or for whatever reasons things may be, you know, whatever may be going on. But you can always guarantee that once violence is, in a, is entered into a relationship, it will inevitably escalate unless there is intervention. And, um, and, and the gaps between violence, you know, can be not just 
minutes and days, but actually months and even years. And so um, it's difficult for people to understand, I think, that in, in the periods where um, the relationships to be it seems to be repairing and you find that um, space between each other that's there's that's fond and and you know one would even say loving um, you, you you your hope returns and you think well this is the man I I really like or this is the man I'm attracted to or this is the man I love and and you hope that that person is going to stay like that and then unfortunately you begin to learn that you can't tread on eggshells forever and you can't adjust everything you do to make to try to make sure that you know there isn't another episode or an incident and then and you realize that no matter how careful and you are there will always be something that triggers that violence and um until somebody acknowledges and takes responsibility um you know you can't change that and so i think that that's the difficulty is the onus of responsibility seems to imply that women should leave and and by fix the problem by getting out of the situation um, rather than the perpetrator of the violence taking responsibility and actually changing their behavior and learning how to um, make different choices Luke uh, Batty would have been 19 this year. Um, tell us a bit about him. What was uh, what was he like? Yeah, look, he was a really, really model baby. I was so lucky. I just had a, a fabulous, um, fabulous time when he was as a little little newborn baby, and I, I it was very difficult. I had to go back to work when I was he was four months old, and that really tore me apart leaving him at such a young age but he was you know he 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 adapted to childcare and he was really well looked after and life as a single mum for me was really stretched and really um it's hard work it's really hard work but every moment and every day is so worth it and um he was a really um I would, you know, I think every mother would say that about their own son and every child, but he was an incredibly good-looking little boy and very sensitive. And as and as he, you know, grew, he liked to be um, funny. And um, I, I know that that didn't always go down well in his classroom. And we, I'd often be part of <laughs> teacher discussions as um, Luke learned how to. Um, as 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 a being the only child in a single mother household, you know, I I really understood his need to assert himself as a rough and tumble young boy, you know, and he had no one to practice with at home other than his mother. And we did, you know, I did used to find myself doing rough play with him and things. But as a boy, you know, they need that's that's what they look for, for from their dads and and brothers and and so he would get into trouble at school often with. Um, finding himself in the playground with other kids wrestling and um, and um, and if he wasn't crying somebody else would be or something like this and but um, he was he would have been able to he would have had the academic intelligence to do whatever he wanted but I'm fairly sure he would have been a bit like me which he didn't enjoy study and I think um, I, I look at his you know his friends and where they're at now, and I'm not sure what what direction Luke would have gone in, but I think I would have been hard pressed to keep him at school for as long as I would have liked him to. But um, um, he was he liked performing magic tricks, and he 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 did enjoy football. I don't know whether he would have continued with it. He was he got a bit bored with cricket, but actually when he got a um, he was the man of the match. Um, at one time and and had a great match and so I think that rekindled his love of cricket for another season um, he always wanted to be picked to um, you know whether it was doing a magic tr trick or if somebody's actually asking for someone to go up on stage Luke would always be desperate to be the person chosen and of course he never was which would really really upset him to him um, so he was, he was, um, you know, a bright, 
um, bright young kid. He was very, he was actually surprisingly romantic. And when I say that, I mean, he was only 11, but he'd, he'd written a letter a year or so beforehand. And I've still got the copies of these letters. They were very funny. I think I put one of those in, in, in the copy of my book, actually. It was so, it was such a sweet, mm. innocent letter saying that, you know, there were a few, it was to a, a little girl that he really had a crush on for a very long time. And he wrote to her saying that, you know, there was other people in the class that really liked her too, but he was the best. Uh, this is the gist of it at least. Um, and that was because he could do really good cartwheels. And I thought to myself, I've never seen him do a cartwheel yet. But, um, you know, he, he was such um, a thoughtful kid. He, he would, if I, he knew I was upset, he, he would know how to comfort me, which I felt was a lot for a, a little you know, a, a little person to, to find himself in that place. But I was really reassured that he knew how to, you know, to be kind and to be thoughtful. And he would write me little notes. And that was really, really sweet. And all of those I've kept as well, because, um, you know, I, I guess I intended at some point on his 21st or something to present him with a lot of these things. And, um just as a reminder of what a funny little fellow he was you say that uh, attending your own child's funeral is a complete inversion of the natural order of things i don't know how much you want to say about the circumstances of uh, of of luke's luke's death but but what what stands out to you in that uh, the lead up and uh, and and the the awful tragedy itself Yes, I suppose it's like everybody would say that, you know, you, you have no idea of what's coming. And so what seems to be like this Monday, this normal day where you're just busy doing household chores and zipping down the road just to pick Luke up from cricket practice and on a really hot night. And then the next thing, your world has just changed. And, um, you, you know, your body just can't take in what's happening it, it, it does protect you um, and certainly I wouldn't wish that experience on anybody it's it's something that certainly um, affects you obviously for the rest of your life and um, I think that the finality and the fact that you know you he's gone it's just something that you can't absorb. It's just something too, too difficult to comprehend. And you, you know, you, you just in shock and um, you just function um, or not. Um, you know, I have some memory, but I'm sure there's many conversations that I don't recall and things that I would have said or done that I don't have a memory of, but certainly, um, um, I remember on the night saying I've joined a club. I've joined a club that no one wants to be part of. And I thought of the three little Farquhar boys outside of Ballarat whose father drove them into a dram and they, dam and they all drowned, um, except him, he got out. And the little girl, Darcy Freeman, that got thrown over the Westgate Bridge. And I, I thought of these kids and it, and I, I just thought, how do you recover? How do you recover from something like this? This is, how can this be happening to me? This doesn't happen to anyone I know. This, you know, so you begin to, you can't comprehend that it could possibly be possible. And, and certainly that with all of Greg's faults and all of these problems, I never. I truly never imagined he was capable of what he did. And um, to think that you had known someone for an extended time and shared, shared very intimate and, and important um, parts of your life with, to think that they were capable of something like this is it's not, it's beyond me. Um, there was, there's never in my life and none of my family that 
I know would never comprehend killing anybody, at least of all their own child. So it, it's just, it's just horrendous. And, and to think, you know, for everybody that, that cared and everybody that knew Luke and I, so many people were affected because, and, this, and his friends and his ch the children, how could your father kill you? Um, it's, it's real. And how do you explain that? How do you explain that? to them and what do you say it, it's it was it's horrible and it's still you know very confronting and I think that um we all just try and get through the best we can and um everybody was equally as horrified and and in disbelief and, and you know a lot of people not a lot, but probably a fair number of, of people had known my difficult journey with Greg and Luke's father, um, but no one would have ever anticipated that it would have ended up in Luke's death. You say that you became Australian of the Year because I have endured the kind of tragedy that makes people recoil, but it's more than that. Others have endured tragedy. What made you so unusual, I think, Rosie, was the way in which almost immediately you stepped into the role of, of advocate and explainer and talked about family violence and uh, raised the profile of that issue in a way that, that no one before had managed to do. Uh, what, what made you decide to, to step into the public arena uh, at a time when you'd endured such an awful private tragedy? You know, look, I, I wish I, I could say it was a conscious decision. I wish I could say that it was a planned and thought out approach, but it really wasn't. Um, I think the day I chose to speak to the media, which was the day after Luke had been killed, um, it was really out of stubbornness because I, I, I heard my house was full of people who all came together to be together to support them, me, but to support each other. Um, I just re recall at some point waking up from a sleep I didn't know I was in and seeing my house full of people. And um, and I heard, and my, my recollection of this is that I, I could hear them talking about the media being camped outside and that somebody should go and tell them to, you know, move away. And for some reason, I just, I felt that people weren't asking me, they were talking about protecting me, but they weren't actually consulting with me. And I just said, well, if anyone's going to tell them to go, it'll be me. And just kind of stubbornly decided to head outside, much to everybody's astonishment. And um, this is the day after Luke's death. Yeah, yeah. I just can't imagine fronting TV cameras after losing my eleven-year-old son. Well, when you see me, you know you can see the exhaustion and the pain and the grief and the shock all in all in that face. And I think that um, I genuinely went to say very respectfully, "I know you've got a job to do." But out of respect, would you please mind leaving? That's what I went out to say. But then um, the media had no idea who I was, and they were incredulous actually that it was that I was the mother, and um, and so they, you know, we started to to talk, and and I I can't tell you how long I was out there for really, and I I do recall some of the key things I did say. Um, but I, I, I just obviously came out of from my heart and I, I just spoke my truth in that moment and that is really how it changed that conversation about family violence because people were able, you know, the, the media was able to put it into a context that had impact and, um, and I've, you know, I've really had a lot of media support over my journey and I'm really thankful for the journey that I've been able to have through those supportive journalists with integrity who have been able to 
help raise this issue and 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 become a mainstream conversation because without the media behind you this is incredibly difficult to do if not impossible yes that's interesting that you you say that the uh, the the relationship with respectful journalists is is really important in getting the message out and presumably you then began to link up with other family violence campaigners over the coming days yes i did um look i very quickly, um, people from organisations that um, work in the family violence space were able to reach out to me. They then became an invaluable resource of support as I understood um, how to expand and and, and be my advocacy and to really place... Um, yeah, to challenge community attitudes and to to speak in in ways that had cut through and to be able to quote um, very stark and um, statistics and I, I, they really really were amazing and I certainly they helped me um, with political appointments and preparing for and supporting me to, to meet with lead politicians at a federal and a state level across the country over that time, which obviously became certainly much more um, over since becoming Australian of the Year. That gave me, the Australian of the Year really gave me that national platform where I was really thrust into an, that opportunity where you could really um, use that platform for, for to create a momentum um, and, and some significant change, which is what I was really determined to do. And you weren't just talking about family violence too, Rosie. You were also um, talking about what it is to, uh, to deal with such immense grief and loss. Uh, you know, I think about the United States at the moment uh, having as its new president a man who has lost two children and uh, and a wife, uh, and the the ability that Biden has to to speak to grief, probably like uh, few other American presidents have ever been able to do. Uh, how do you go about speaking about about tragedy? What do you uh, what do you say to others who've suffered? terrible loss you know people must come up to you and, and share their stories all the time what uh, what advice do you offer to them it's really difficult because everybody's different and each journey is different and just for me to be able to say it will get better or it gets easier or time heals you know nothing sounds as if um it doesn't sound realistic or probable you you feel like you are never going to escape this the intensity of the pain and I can certainly understand why people um would feel it's too much and I I guess you find the right words because you speak from the heart um to that particular person and wherever they're at whatever wherever they're at at that point and I think that Sometimes it's it's not even words, you know. It's not what you you know. It's just it's it's an, an, a shared knowing. They know how I feel. I know how they feel. And you, it's it's not always words that you find. It's 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 a shared knowing and an understanding. And when you do start to talk to each other, and I have, as you say, met parents who have lost children in varying ways, and. Um, there's quite often a similar path where it really challenges relationships between husband and wife, mother and father. Um, it, it challenges relationships with extended family and friendships. And some people that you feel you could count on and your friendship is unshakable, you do find that they don't go the distance but you find that new people come into your life that you you just hadn't anticipated were the right people at the right time and your journey continues to unfold and people come into it. And I think that that's, the, that's very difficult. It's very difficult. Um, and you may not 
be reacting in the ways that people think you should. Um, I, I don't talk at length to my parents about the work I do here in Australia. It's it's difficult for them to understand, and I I I'm I tend to not talk about it with them, and yet I find a lot of deep understanding amongst new colleagues and friendships I've made over this journey who um, maybe through tragedy or maybe because of the work that they do um, in areas like family violence or mental health or other areas where, you know, they really work hard to improve the world we live in. And it's a passion and a journey we share together that helps support each other, I think. But there's no doubt for me that having the opportunity I've been given, particularly through the Australian of the Year that I um, award that I got, um, gave me a, a purpose and a meaning that you lose, you know, and how you flounder and you've, you've got to reinvent your life um, because the life you thought you were going to have or the direction you thought you were going in has just been pulled away from you. And so I'll be forever grateful that the, the decisions I made that day to speak to the media set me on a path where I felt I had purpose and meaning at a time when I had nothing. And I, I think that's, that's really very important to try to, and I, I can see that's why so many people, not just myself, but so many people through tragedy go on to do, to try to make change and to raise awareness because it gives them that, they don't, it gives them that hope and that that reason to keep going and um, because they don't want people to go through the same thing that they've gone through. Yes, that sense of purpose that, uh, that you display is just, uh, just extraordinary. Uh, and you mentioned too um, counselling before. How, how have you used counselling? How often do you see a counsellor now? How often did you see a counsellor in the past? For people who've suffered these sorts of experiences, um, do you have any practical advice on, on using counsellors? Yes, look, I would say 30 odd years ago, I went to my GP and I was struggling with what I didn't realise was a lot of anxiety at the time. And this was, he said, look, you've got three greatest contributors to stress happening at this point. You, you know, you're buying a house, you've got pressures at work, and you're in a relationship that's, um, you know, that's that's not working. And so ultimately, that was a point where I, I think for the first time in my life, I, I didn't understand what was happening within me and why I didn't appear to be, um, you know, what, what was happening to me. And so through counselling back then, you start to um, put things into a perspective and you start to recognise and understand. And then you start to work on some um, perhaps things from your past, from your childhood that you haven't taken, made the opportunity or taken the time to resolve. And I, I think that that's counselling, you know, comes in and out of your life. And, well, that's how I've used it in times where I've been very confused or very lost or very deflated or even depressed. And so I I think, you know, you, it's important to find the right counsellor. And I certainly know that um, when I've not been tracking particularly well, my doctor's very good. And um, so I... I I revisit counsellors when I feel that um, I'm struggling a little, that I can't shake off um, melancholic and ruminating thoughts that I just get up every day. And, and you know, I still go through those periods of time. Um, and and it's, it's, it's recognising that... Um, You'll always come through these feelings. That's my thinking. You, you, you just, you've got to keep make, doing a number of different things. You know, counselling isn't the only thing that works. But for me, I think it's an important part of what I do when I feel like I need to speak to somebody to really express what's going on and have that 
professional skill set that helps you have clarity around that and a deeper understanding of why those feelings are there. But same, you know, the other thing I, I do is I love dogs. I always have since I was a little child and I love walking my dogs and that there's no greater joy for me each day than, wake, than going and walking my dogs, having a quick chat with other dog, dog, doggy oriented people and seeing the fun that, that dogs have just sniffing and running around and playing. Um, and, and I think that that for me has always been a really important thing. And then the other thing I've realized is as I'm feeling apathetic or low or despondent, the last thing I feel like doing is actually going and doing some exercise. But once I've pushed myself and get back into a routine, I realize just how much better I feel both mentally and physically doing exercise that, um, that I begin to enjoy. I, don't, I can't say I enjoy it when I first start out, but for, for me, my challenge is, is that consistency. And certainly I've been here in, um, you know, in Victoria in the stage four lockdown, we, we really weren't able to, to go to the gym or and do those kind of things. So I'm off track a bit, but I, I will get there. But um, I, have a, I have always wanted to trek the great walks around the world. And um, 20 odd years ago, I did go trekking in Nepal, which was just the most amazing experience. And I've been determined to walk in other parts of the world since. And then when I had Luke, of course, like most parents, they put those kind of adventures and self-indulgent, self-indulged um, holidays on hold because your priority is your child and, and doing child-oriented things. And now I haven't got Luke, I've rekindled that um, determination to, to walk in beautiful parts of the world. And I, I have done that as often as I can over the last few years. And um, that I feel has given, it's, it physically challenges you, but it's almost like a walking meditation where you, you're in your thoughts but you're also embracing the beauty around you in such stunning scenery and with like-minded people. And every day you get up, have a hearty breakfast and walk and you come home back to the next hotel um, or wherever you're staying, tired from walking throughout the day, um, have a nice meal, the, the, um, good conversations again around dinner and go to bed early and get up and do the same thing. And I can't tell you how, how much it helped me in my recovery and in my, my journey. And I, I know that may not be for everybody, but I think that for me, it's something that I, I know has really helped me get to where I am now. And I see that as a really valuable thing that I intend to do as long as I'm fit and able to and and some of my closest friends now are in their mid-70s and I go on some really tough walks with them I walked across England on the coast to coast walk with them a few years ago and they're my inspiration you know for what retirement can be and it's a, it's frighteningly close for me these days and so I look at if I want to have a good physical health um, I need to be active and I need to really honour my body and, and nurture it and, make, and take care of it. And um, so those are the things that I, I try to do. I try to sleep well. I try to eat well. And I, I you know, do like people and, and I do like to catch up with people and and so, and friendship is incredibly important to me. So I, I'd like to continue to be a good friend and to, to understand how important friendships are in my life. And for anyone who's interested in the role of uh, walking as a way of improving your mental well-being and dealing with loss, I'd, I'd highly recommend John O'Lanine's books, Into the Heart of the Himalayas and Perfect Motion, uh, which followed the, uh, the tragic death of his brother, 
Jono is uh, is one of the uh, one of, one of the great, uh, great 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 walkers and uh, and very wise about its impacts. Uh, but Rosie, one of the other things that strikes me about how you've dealt with the tragedy of 2014 is your sense of respect towards Greg. Um, he also died that day, shot by police and resisting arrest. Uh, and you've been very thoughtful and, and extraordinarily generous in, in the way in which you've remembered him and also talked about how you felt the system failed him as somebody with mental illness. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that and also about the way in which that, that framing has, has affected your own outlook on life? Look, I think there's nothing to be served really in speaking about Greg in a, in a really angry or way. I still can't believe he did what he did. And I think of his parents and his brothers and his family who loved him. And I feel really sorry that that, that they that they have to bear that pain um, and that discomfort of what Greg did. I can only imagine how hard that must have been and still be for them to know what he did. But I think that, um, to be frank, I think it was easier for me because he's gone. If I'd have had to sit through a trial if Greg would be alive and in prison for what he did, I think it would have been even more difficult. But my grief has really been all-consuming about Luke and I give Greg very little thought, um, very little thought. I just want to be a better person and I want to be always... I, I fail my own expectations on a frequent basis, but I strive to be a kind, compassionate and generous person. My father is, and if there's anything I'd like to think that I've gained from him are those qualities. And as, less, as imperfect as I am and as flawed as I am, I strive to be that better person. And I do, you know, you can't, how can you help somebody that won't help themselves? How can you help somebody that refuses to see their life is going down the path it is because it's their fault. It's, it's not, no one else's fault. And so I think that when somebody has got such complex mental health issues and chooses the path that they do, um, which is destructive, it's, it's sabotaging, you know, there are a lot of people Greg affected um, and, he, it was very difficult. Um, it was easy to like him initially, but you would see a side of him that um, that would always come up. And and I I think that it it would. It, what my biggest disappointment was is with his mental health. He could just carry on making my life a misery without any intervention. And the day he assaulted me and things really escalated in a way that frightened Luke and I, the police did take him for a mental health assessment. And they just, by then he'd obviously calmed down, was lucid enough to say the things that he needed to say to be able to get out. And that was all they needed was just a tick in a box and off he goes again. And yet if you'd have delved a bit deeper, if you'd have taken a bit more interest you wouldn't have taken you long to realize exactly how damaged this man is and what a risk he is and so there isn't there wasn't a system and I don't think there still is of genuine intervention for people struggling with really complex mental health issues and they're a risk to themselves and really sadly they can make people in their families and, and their immediate circle it can be incredibly problematic and highly dangerous. And until they actually do something, there is nothing that can be done. And often the, these people are put in prison because we've never replaced or um, 
we haven't got the, the, the right type of support to be able to help people. So it's really catastrophic, actually. And, um, a, a, you know, certainly an area of that we recognise is, is sadly lacking. Rosie, you set up the Luke Batty Foundation after Luke's death and then shut it down in 2018. Um, can you tell us about that foundation and, and what you learned from the experience of, of establishing it? Look, I think, Andrea, I, I would be the same as so many people that once, you know, that they have something happen, it's tragic. Often we, people will suggest or you will have the idea to build a foundation. And I think what you're trying to do is keep the memory alive, keep the name alive. You don't want them to get forgotten. You want to plough everything into this organisation to keep that memory going and in their honour. And... I think when we start off with that intent, we may not have, and I certainly didn't, the professional understanding or knowledge or experience. I hadn't set up an organisation before, and most people haven't, and, 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 or a charity, and it is a legally complex thing to do. But then you actually have to have a board and staff and you have to um, have governance and accountability and all of the things. And of course, I didn't have any of this experience and I, it was all an absolute learning curve for me. I didn't understand the function of a board or the role of the chair. And when I set it up, I was very fortunate because, you know, certainly all I, all it, how it started was really people gave to me because they, felt so sorry for my situation and people wanted to help. So they just gave me money and I put it into an account and I called it Luke Batty um, Trust. And so for me, that was just putting the money aside, not knowing really what to do with it, but thinking I would donate it to a charity at some point when I determined which was the right charity to give it to donate it to and then as my journey grew and and um, I began to see possibility and so my first vision was to how do I educate people about family violence but then as my journey catapulted me into you know into other areas I began to understand more and work with organizations and where I really wanted to be was how do I stop violence before it starts? And I recognised that in the, that primary prevention space was an area that I could really um, help shift community attitudes and, and really do valuable work. And so the foundation was incredibly successful and we raised over a million dollars, certainly. But I was utterly exhausted and I hadn't taken any time. I, every day, every day I was up at the crack of dawn. I'd be on the computer seven days a week till about 10 o'clock at night until my eyes were blurred, replying to people's emails, people in crisis, people wanting me to tell me how terrible their experience through the family law court system was. The, the journey was exhausting and I felt such a responsibility to answer everybody's emails, everybody's letters. And sometimes it took me weeks and months to get back to people, but I, I always did. Yes. And I, it was so important to me and it was, such, it was so worrying to me that people may not get a response or the response they were looking for. And I couldn't help everybody. I couldn't do everything. There was only one of me. And... Um, I began to feel that as people were hired to come into the organisation by the board and by the chair, I began to feel the, the, the foundation was, I was losing my connection with it. And I began to feel that Luke and I were, were you know, my vision was being taken from me. And, and I just find it really difficult and confusing to understand and at the end of the day, I hadn't had the chance and opportunity and I hadn't created the time to do what people had told me I needed to do, which was grieve. 
and I thought I had been grieving. I thought I'd been grieving every day because the pain was so much, it was as much as I could bear. I didn't realise it was further to go. And at some point I just felt, I, I did do this walk um, on the coast to coast in the UK. It took 22 days and I went away for two months and I came back knowing that I couldn't keep doing what I was doing, that I had to slow down and stop and really work out how I could work in a more sustainable, balanced way. And I think it, um, it, it became apparent to me that the board or the chair had, had realised that somebody else needed to lead that organisation and I wasn't the right person to do that. And, um, and so I stepped, uh, stepped aside, recognising that I needed to take that time out for mental health issues, um, which were, you know, grief, trauma, PTSD, you name it. I was still struggling with all of that. And unfortunately, yes. the decision to close the foundation was made by the board, not by myself. And so I felt incredibly, incredibly saddened because everything I'd tried to do, everything I'd worked hard to do every day I'd got up was for the foundation and so to have decisions taken out of your hands was really difficult for me to accept and and understand that um you know and I always said to myself well Rosie Luke wouldn't care he would just say mum I want you to be happy so I did spend six months at least grieving at a level I didn't realise was possible by taking really long walks on the beach and staying at home and being really um, in a very, yeah, in a space that I had avoided. I'd avoided it for as long as I could and it finally had to, I had to sit with it. And, um, and once I had done that, um, I had plans to, to do, you know, some more trekking and, Gradually, I realised I'd come through the worst of it and, and began to feel relief, began to feel relief that I actually didn't have the worry. I didn't have to be concerned about staff. I didn't have to be concerned about money. I didn't have to be concerned. I could just, um, yeah, feel the pressure lift and, and, and start to find myself again and become the person I felt I'd lost and and um, that was really confronting. But, you know, here I am now, three years later, I'm still sad, still sad that I couldn't, it, you know, it wasn't the right thing for me to, be, to do because there were many things I would have liked to continue to be able to do with the foundation, but accepting that that path was, was just too difficult for me. Thanks for sharing that. That's, uh, that's really insightful. Uh, let me close with a couple of standard questions that I ask all my interviewees. Uh, Rosie, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, gosh, I'll tell you what. Um, my self-doubt has held me back and crippled me at different times. And to just not doubt yourself, to just know you've got this. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Well, I still have a spiritual belief system, but I think that's changed. Um, that's kind of changed from the um, Catholic upbringing as I had as a little girl um, at school and the Sunday school I used to go to and the kind of religious views I had back then to how I have would view myself now as a spiritual person rather than a religious person. So maybe that's what's changed. When are you most happy? I'm most happy when I am walking along the beach with my, with my dogs on a warm, sunny day when the tide is low, the sky is blue, and I see my dogs fishing trying to fish they never catch one 
and you just see <laughs> you see they're they're just so immersed and having such fun and you the, the beach that's local to me that it's, it takes me about 20 minutes to get there on a lovely summer's day it is just stunning and I I take that time to really appreciate its isolation it's its rawness its naturalness and I realize just how lucky I am to have access on my doorstep to that type of beauty and and that's what I really I I you know I love making time force you know just stopping and really appreciating what I have what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy is it those dogs I would say that's a big part of it but I tell you what I one of my older dogs Zach he died at the end of December and I think oh gosh it it hurts so much again and you know so we're always there's always going to be happiness and grief and loss and um, I've just now bought another little puppy that I wasn't sure that I wanted another dog but I I have and um, his name's Spencer and he's a little cocker spaniel that I've wanted to have for um, since I was a child so I am having I've got three dogs and um they are my family, really. And, um, yeah, that's – I can't remember the question, actually, Andrew. But just, any excuse to talk about dogs, I think. Most important thing you do is stay, stay mentally and physically healthy. And, uh, yeah, and you said them. three dogs, which uh, – Yeah, yes. walk, walk them, actually. Being outside, walking them. I, I just think that that gets you out. It gets you moving. Um, you have I have chats with people because I, you know I like to be friendly, and I just love the interactions dogs have. I think it puts puts you in a good frame of mind, and then you come back, have your breakfast, and tackle the day. So I like getting up early, walking the dogs as early as I can, and um, and being outside. I live on acreage. I've got two donkeys, and a half blind off the track racehorse and who's a paddock pet and I like pottering outside like I like smelling of horses I like getting dirty and um, I guess that farming girl and childhood I had is, is just ever present it, it doesn't ever leave you I don't think. Sounds like there's a nice uh, Dr Doolittle aspect to the way in which you live at the moment. Uh, do you have any guilty pleasures? Oh gosh I am a killer for chocolate I just I'm having a, I need to go and see my counselor again because I am eating way too much chocolate. I think it's because I can. I think it's because I'm still at home a lot working remotely. And, um, and I, I know that I, I, if I buy it, it's sitting in the cupboard and I'll devour it with very little self-control actually. So um, chocolate is my weakness and um, that's my main one really, I think. And finally, Rosie, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? That's a good question, Andrew. Um, what's, what has just sprung to mind is um, I do like li um, reading biographies and um, a, a, a one of my favourite biographies actually is Michael J. Fox. I read it many years ago now. And I, I think what I related to him was he's, he's my age and he's chronically affected with Parkinson's and you saw him as this very, you know, successful person on, on TV and, um, and film. And then you saw the decline in him. And what he says is he's the luckiest man alive because again through that illness he's discovered um strength and insights of himself that he otherwise would not have have had and he's a nicer a better person for that and I think those are the kind of people that I aspire to be um because they are the examples of what's possible and what, 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 what the strength we have within us. And we are always have those choices um, when adversity faces us or when we, you know, when we, when we have choices to make 
and and I think that 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 inspires me. And the title is uh, is is brilliant. Uh, no time like the future. An optimist considers mortality. Uh, it's a uh, it's it's a a pre pre pretty pretty wonderful book from someone who's gone through a lot of adversity. Mm, it is. Rosie Buddy, uh, Australian of the Year, family violence campaigner, and. Um, just all-round inspirational person. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. It's been really um, insightful talking to you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. I referred to a couple of past podcasts in this discussion, so if you enjoyed it, uh, you might want to uh, listen back to the interviews with Jess Hill and John O'Lanine. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.